if you've got some space, you want to kind of like crunch in. There's some people that are still looking for seats. If you've got kids that haven't gone off to class, you can take them now. If you've got a Bible you want to open up, we're going to start a new series this morning in the book of Genesis. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Genesis is the first one. Uh, But I actually want to start this morning in Genesis chapter 50, which is the last chapter in the book of Genesis. So if you've got your Bible on your phone or there in front of you, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 50. I'm going to read from what is essentially the last paragraph, if you will, of the book of Genesis. I'm going to start in verse 24. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. It says this, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your mercy, Lord, that has taken our sin and by your grace has separated it from us as far as the east is from the west. God, I pray that your spirit present among us this morning open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears to what it is that you have to say in the book of Genesis. God, I pray that you would give us kind of big picture understanding this morning, that you would help us anchor our hearts in a few truths as we launch into a new series here. God, I pray that you would speak to us from your word, remind us of the glory and the beauty of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Like seven or eight years ago, I think, I should have checked with my parents, but seven or eight years ago, um, I stood in a cemetery in a city that I didn't know existed, city is a stretch, in a, uh, at an intersection that I didn't know existed, surrounded by tombstones that had my family's last name on them full of people that I didn't know existed, but we had the same last name. My grandfather had passed away. It had been about a year, and we got a phone call from someone from Macon, Nebraska, who said, hey, we think that we'd like to do a funeral service here for, was talking to my dad, your father should be my grandfather. Uh, okay, so we get in the car. We drive west in Kansas to the middle of nowhere, then north into Nebraska, deeper into the middle of nowhere, because there are like gradations to the middle of nowhere. So further into the middle of nowhere, into Nebraska, then we took a left and went further west, uh, which basically felt like driving into an endless sea of corn. And then we made it to an intersection 
And literally, like, that, that is the town of Macon, Nebraska. A road going east-west and a smaller road going north-south. And at that intersection, there's not even a stop sign. So this is not a one-stoplight town. This is not even a one-stop sign town. This is one road going that way and one road going that way. And if you stop long enough, welcome to Macon, Nebraska. There's nothing there. Near this intersection, there's a Lutheran church and a Methodist church, nothing else. And so we pull into the Lutheran church because that's where this funeral is going to happen. We spend some time in like a kind of a celebration service there. We go out into the cemetery and there are all of these tombstones and my last name on them. And I don't know any of these, I didn't even know these people existed. As far as I was concerned, the Fritzen family was my family, my, my dad there, and his brother who lived out in Colorado, and our grandparents who had lived in Kansas and then the, the end of their life was spent in Colorado. And like that was the extent of the Fritzen family. And so we're doing this funeral service and all these people know my grandfather. They know him by a different name than I knew him. That's a different story for a different time. And we're in this cemetery full of these tombstones. And it's like I wanted to find the oldest tombstone there and be able to have a conversation with that person. How did we get here? Who are you? What is this? Why is there a farm down the road that's like the Fritzen family farm that I didn't even know exists? Who lives there? Who are those people? Not like how did we get here because I knew the Google Maps instructions. But how did we get here in the more like uh, broad sense, you know, like I'm having an existential crisis and I need to know how I arrived at the place where I'm having an existential crisis. The end of Genesis, you're one of Joseph's brothers and you've got probably like a decent sense of who your family is. And yet there you are in, in Egypt and Joseph is dead in a coffin in Egypt. And you're fairly certain that the family's history began in a garden where there was no death. And it was supposed to take you to a promised land where there would only be blessing. And so you're standing there in Egypt and there's Joseph dead in a coffin and you're looking around going... How in the world did we get here? What is happening? And if you took like the, the whole kind of story of scripture, you could ask that question all the way through. You're a Gentile Christian in Rome and Paul has written a letter to you and he's talking about how Gentiles are being grafted into this tree of Israel. How in the world did we get here? You're a Jewish individual in Jerusalem as this man is riding into the city on the back of a donkey and people are waving palm branches and crying Hosanna. How in the world did we get here? You're an Israelite who has come back to Jerusalem with Nehemiah and Ezra and you're standing there where the walls used to surround Jerusalem and the temple is a pile of rubble. How in the world did we get here? What is going on? You're Daniel in exile in Babylon. How did I get here? You're a child. 
near a place called Gilgal, and you're looking at a pile of 12 stones that your dad claims came out of the Jordan River when God parted it so that Israel could walk through there into the promised land. And you're saying, okay, yeah, but dad, like, I get that that's what the stones are for, but how and why did we end up here? You're an Israelite individual 400 years after the death of Joseph. You're in slavery in Egypt, crying out to the Lord to rescue you. God, how did we get here? What is happening? You're Isaac, high up on a mountain, carrying a bundle of sticks. You're starting to put together who the sticks are for. And you're looking at your dad going, hey man, how do we get here? Like, I mean, I know I carried the sticks up here, but help me understand how we arrived at this particular moment. It's one day long into the eternal future. There you are at the throne of God, surrounded by a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And in all of your wonder and amazement, you're looking around going, man, how do we get here? I want to submit to you that this morning that Genesis begins to provide the answer to all of those questions. Every single stage along the way. You may be looking around the world right now, asking yourself in the existential sense, how do we get here? I want to submit to you this morning that Genesis helps to provide the answer to that question. How did we make it from life with no death in the Garden of Eden to death with what feels like no life in the world today? If you'll hang with me over like 30 some weeks, I want to submit to you that Genesis provides the answer to that question. Now, our plan is to take Genesis 1 through like the beginning part of chapter 12. How did we get from basically the creation of all things to Abraham? But if things are going really well, we reserve the right to do the next 38 chapters in Genesis. Um, But the plan is to go from here to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. This morning, what I want us to do is try to get some clarity on what the book of Genesis is. A lot of times when we start a new series, what we'll do is we'll take kind of whatever the first passage or piece of scripture is in that book or that section of scripture, and we'll try to do the introduction alongside preaching on the first portion of the text. Uh, There's a reason why Uh, We're going to do this a little bit differently this morning. This morning, I just want to answer four questions. What is the book of Genesis? Like, what kind of book is it? What is the purpose of the book of Genesis? What are the main themes of the book of Genesis? And then how do we see all of that from like a 30,000 foot view in the text? And then I want to end this morning by giving four truths to kind of anchor our hearts and minds in so that as we come to do this every Sunday... Uh, we have some common ground to stand on as we move forward. The kind of big takeaway this morning is this, that the book of Genesis introduces us to God and his purpose in the world. 
one of the key challenges with the book of Genesis, whether it be us trying to come collectively and like we do the church preaching thing through the book, or you sit down in your living room with the Bible and you open up to the book of Genesis. One of the primary challenges is asking the right question of the text at every step along the way. We've done a number of sermon series in my time here, Old Testament, New Testament, different kinds of like literature within the Bible, but none of them has been, uh, have been as contextually challenging as this will be. It will be very difficult for us week in and week out to get ourselves into the minds of ancient Israelites. That's going to be hard. It will be difficult for us every week to seek the right answers from each text. It will be difficult every week to resist wanting the text to do more than it should, and it will be difficult every week to resist the urge to read 21st century stuff into a text that was written long before the calendar even rolled over into AD numbers. All of that will be very, very hard. And if we don't do the hard work of getting ourselves into the right context, it's not just that we'll misunderstand Genesis. It's that we will be prone to misusing Genesis. And if we show up with a aim to misuse it, we'll have no chance at understanding it correctly. Getting the context of this right is crucial. Not just to be able to preach well in each week of this series, but more than that. My desire as pastor is to kind of like preach and teach my way out of a job. My hope in any series is not just to like get us together and hold all the secrets of God's word and expound the beauty of those from every page so that you leave and have to come back in order to get more of it. My hope in each and every series is to give you handles to hold on to so that you can mine the truths of the gospel out for yourselves on every single page of Genesis. And so my hope in this particular sermon is to give you like some framework so that five years from now, if you sit down to read the book of Genesis, you could say, I took some notes about this and you could go back and get the framework and then see all the glories of the text without me. Like that, that would be the goal. So with that in mind, the hope is to give everybody some handles for coming to the book of Genesis and approaching it as faithfully as we can, not just for this series, but for the rest of our lives. So question number one, what kind of book is Genesis? Now that's an important question because we read different genres of literature differently. And so we need to know how it is that we're supposed to read this book. And now the answer up there is going to sound like word salad, but I ask that you just give me a few minutes to explain what I mean. The book of Genesis is the theologically interpreted historical memory of Israel. I'm just going to take the pieces of that. It's theologically interpreted. Genesis does not deal with all the possible avenues of human history. It works specifically through the lens of Yahweh, God. So when Genesis tells you about the origins of the universe, who does it start with? In the beginning, God. The whole thing is interpreted through the lens of the God, Yahweh. And so when Genesis tells you about the creation of animals or the sin of humanity, about the flood with Noah or the Tower of Babel, when it tells you about the call of Abraham, the life of Jacob or the life of Joseph, who's actually the center beginning to end? God. Not necessarily 
humanity. The reason Genesis was written was to tell you about this God. The primary thing that Genesis is doing in any account is telling you what God has done in and through those things. So it's not necessarily that like we want to have this great understanding of Joseph. So somebody sits down and writes you a story about Joseph. No, someone tells the story of Joseph so that you can see what God did through Joseph and why. That's what Genesis is trying to tell you. It's theologically interpreted. Next phrase. It's a theologically interpreted historical memory. Genesis is telling us about the workings of God through one specific people, Israel. Now, the authorship of Genesis is typically attributed to Moses. Other portions of Scripture refer to the Pentateuch, which is just the fancy way of saying the first five books of the Bible. Other portions of Scripture refer to those books as the Law of Moses. Now, nowhere is Genesis singled out as having been written by Moses. But at the same time, nowhere does Scripture take those five books, split them apart, and say these five were, or these four were written by Moses in Genesis. Well, it's really old, so it might have been written by someone else. What's most likely is that Genesis is the collected oral traditions of the Israelite people. And then that's taken and put into writing at a later point by Moses or by his biographer, someone who wrote the story of the life of Moses. And it's so the collected history there of Israel. Genesis tell you, doesn't tell you about the rise of the Egyptian empire. It doesn't tell you what's happening in Asia. It doesn't tell you what's happening in Africa or North America or South America or in Antarctica. It tells you about what God is doing with his covenant people, the Israelites. Why? Because that is the group of people that God has chosen to use in order to bring his blessing into the world. So in Genesis, you get the theologically interpreted, it's all about God, historical memory of Israel for a very specific purpose, to tell you about the blessing of God. All of that helps us understand what Genesis is not. Genesis is not postmodern or even modern. Genesis is not Western. Genesis is not suburban American. And I say all of that because very often in Western, suburban, postmodern America, we come to the book of Genesis and we ask it to answer questions that it was never intended to answer. And we ask it to think and look at the world the same way that we think and look at the world from 21st century, postmodern, suburban America. It's never going to do that. It cannot. Postmodern, suburban, Western America did not exist when this was put to paper. So, Genesis is not a science textbook. Genesis is not a map for human society. It was not written to tell us how society is supposed to function. Now, hear me correctly. That's not to say that Genesis has nothing to say about those things. It just wasn't written primarily to answer those questions for 21st century Midwesterners. Sometimes we knowingly comb through the early pages of the Bible in order to force it into something it wasn't intended to do. Other times we're doing that unintentionally. Understanding what Genesis is helps us ask Genesis the right questions. Does it have something to say about matters of natural reality? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about those. Does it have something to say about human flourishing? Yes. And we'll talk about those. 
But even those descriptions of natural reality or human nature, they come through a particular lens. And the lens is God, Yahweh, and the collective memory of his people about his covenant. And so when Genesis has something to say about natural reality or human nature, it has something to say about those questions, but the answers are buried in the person and the character and the being of God. And if you try to extract the answers from the reality of God, you end up with this like disembodied kind of thing where like you could take the answers and set the God aside. That is not how the book of Genesis is supposed to operate. That's because of question number two. What's the purpose of Genesis? The book of Genesis describes the origin, identity, and blessing of God's chosen people. Genesis is the historical basis for God's covenant with Abraham. Genesis provides the theological historical record of how a particular group of people ends up with a particular set of laws and practices that are designed to help them relate to a particular God. I say a particular God because when it was written, there were a lot of other options. Genesis is like the prologue to the great drama of Exodus. You arrive at the book of Exodus, and if you just started there, you'd be asking yourself, Okay, now, who are these people that God is about to rescue? Why does God rescue them? And then why does he take them out in the wilderness and give them these laws and instructions about how to relate to him? Genesis is helping you understand all of that. So by the time you get to the great salvation drama of the Old Testament, you've got all the answers you need for why God would do this miraculous thing. And you've got all the answers you need for how it is that he could control all the elements of nature in order to make it happen. The book of Genesis would be like an Israelite wandering around in the wilderness, sitting down next to their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother and saying, how do we get here? And they paused for a second and thought about how to tell that story and said, well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then they unfolded for you everything that came after that. Now, inside of that, all sorts of issues and topics are covered. What's the nature of humanity? What's the stature of humanity in relation to the rest of creation? What's the scope of this covenant and its promises? What's the nature of this God who would make a covenant and these promises? What's the relationship like between humanity and God? Which leads me to the third question. What are the main themes of Genesis? Answer. The book of Genesis circles around the ideas of God's blessing and curse set alongside humanity's acts of good and evil. Now, if you want to do like the mega, mega deep dive on the book of Genesis, there's a fantastic book called Creation and Blessing. It's by a guy named Alan Ross. Now, when I say the deep, deep dive, if you're someone who's jotting that down, you're like, I'm gonna go to Amazon and get that. It's like 900 pages long. The introduction itself is five chapters and 110 pages. So like I'm talking, get into all of the weeds that are available to get into. But Alan Ross says this, even a casual reading of the book of Genesis reveals the prominence of the theme of blessing. The entire book turns on this motif and its antithesis, cursing. Now, the word in Hebrew for blessing is the word barak, B-A-R-A-K. 
You don't have to know Hebrew in order to see it. Because right from the beginning, God's blessing is being given to all sorts of things. He blesses the land, he blesses animals, he blesses the Sabbath, he blesses humanity, he blesses Noah's sons, eventually he blesses Abraham and tells Abraham that he will be a blessing to the nations. What does that word mean? That word means to fill with strength or to enrich. And in the case of God's blessing, it means that he's enriching something or he's filling someone with strength so that that thing can fulfill his purposes. He gives his blessing to enrich or infuse someone with strength so that that person or that thing can fulfill his purposes. Now, the other side of God's blessing is his curse. And that Hebrew word is the word arar, A-R-A-R. That word means to impose a barrier or to create some sort of like paralysis of movement or ability. God curses the serpent in Genesis chapter three, but he also curses humanity in certain ways. He puts a barrier on them. In other places, the curse of God can be the removal from a place or the removal from a person of blessing. For instance, Cain, after he murders his brother, he's forced to wander. A barrier is placed between him and these people that God is working through and who have his blessing. In other places, there are acts of judgment that function as the work of God's curse without God necessarily speaking that curse. And so the first 11 chapters of Genesis give you these like two uh, sort of like uh, opposite direction trajectories. One up, one down. God creates, everything is good. He's infusing that goodness with his blessing. And it seems like everything is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And you get to the pinnacle and the peak of that, which is the creation of humanity. But then sin enters the world and with it, God's curse. And as sin and the curse spread and ripple outward, you end up with these two massive moments, the flood and the scattering of humanity at the Tower of Babel. Humanity is the peak of God's creating work. They're a blessed creature made in his image. They've got moral responsibility and capability. And when they sin, they know good and evil. The curse enters the world and the rest of Genesis traces the sort of disintegrating work of sin as it ripples its way outward. But all of the Bible is tracing that story of God using a specific people in order to bring his blessing back. The human corollary to God's blessing and curse are acts of good and evil. Once Adam and Eve eat from the tree, they sin. They know the difference between good and evil. And in the cosmic struggle between God's holiness and righteousness and the reality of sin stand humanity's acts. Acts of good, acts of evil. Anything that's harmonious with God, his character, or his being, that thing is good. Anything that's not in harmony with God, his character, or his being, that thing is evil. And as you read the book of Genesis, very often, as is still the case today, acts of evil are just perverted perceptions of what is good. There's a good thing. Humanity twists that into something else, and it's evil. Genesis shows you the propensity of humanity to chase the perversion or the evil rather than to pursue the good. Blessing and curse, good and evil, those are at the core of Genesis. And all along the way, we're learning about who God is. All along the way, the foundation is being laid for how Jesus will come into the world through a specific people for the sake of the whole world in accordance with God's plan and glory and restore blessing and put an end to the curse. Genesis is laying the foundation for that. So question number four, how do we see that from the text? If you've got Genesis open in front of you on your phone or a hard copy, flip back to Genesis chapter one. 
How do we see all of this from the big perspective from the text? Well, the answer to that question is this. The book of Genesis narrows our focus from the universe as a whole to a specific people who have a specific relationship with God. All along the way, Genesis is telling you, look here, not there. Look here, put your focus here, not over there. There's a relationship of blessing that's supposed to be accompanied by humanity doing good. And unfortunately, that's not the case. Read the book of Genesis, it's pretty dark. There's not a lot of good happening. There's a lot of evil in a lot of different ways. And what emerges as you read through all 50 chapters is a picture of a God who is just and loving and righteous and gracious and merciful. He's holy and compassionate and patient. He's got blessing for the world, but it's going to come from one place. And this book is like pulling up a chair next to your great, 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 great grandmother and asking, how did we get here? And she unfolds a story. It's the story of Israel through the lens of God who's promised blessing but brought a curse because of the evil of humanity. And you can think of Genesis in three really big pieces. Genesis 1 through Genesis 11 is like the introduction of the universe. And then Genesis 12 through 36 traces the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then Genesis 37 to the end of the book is Joseph. And how did we end up in, in Egypt? But inside of those three divisions, there's something happening that I think brings better clarity to exactly what it is we're supposed to be looking at in Genesis. And so uh, I made this chart. It's a little bit hard to read, um, but I have a solution for that, which I'll give you in a moment. Uh, and by in a moment, I mean at the end of the service. So hang out with us. Um, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the way through the end of that account in Genesis chapter two, verse three, gives you sort of like the introduction of everything. If you approach a person and you say, hey, what's the book of Genesis about? And they say, oh, it's about the creation of the universe. Your response should be, then what are the rest of the 48 next chapters about? Because the creation of the universe part takes place in a couple chapters, and then we're racing forward with some other story. Look at Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the records. That phrase... These are the, and there's one word there in Hebrew. I make a commitment to myself anytime I come up here not to bore too many people with old words. So just know these are the records. The rhythm of that phrase that appears 10 different times in the book of Genesis provides the funneling of your focus into one direction. And the first place it starts is these are the records of the heavens and the earth. Like, hey, this is, uh, this is the record of the universe. Here's how all of this started. Then Flip to Genesis 5, verse 1. It's the next time that phrase appears. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. Okay, so you could look at all this stuff in the universe, but don't look there. Look here. It's the record of Adam. And you get the family of Adam there. How did we get from Adam to Seth? Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Okay. And there you get your flood story and everything that happened there. Then in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, 
you get Noah's sons. These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this would be the part of the story where like your great, 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 great grandma is like, hey, let me tell you a little bit about these guys. But don't look at them. We're looking at Shem. That's where we need to direct our attention. So in chapter 11, verse 10, these are the family records of Shem. So here's some interesting stuff about these other guys. Shem, though, give your attention there. And you get this line from Shem down to Terah, verse 27. These are the family records of Terah. Here are all these other people, but we're looking through this person, Terah. And Terah is going to take you to Abraham. Now, what's really interesting is that there is no, here's the family record of Abraham. Why? That's the entirety of the rest of the Bible. Okay, so that phrase isn't there. Instead, you get to Genesis chapter 25, and it's, this is the family record of Ishmael. He's on the top there. Because you get his family record as if great, 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 grandma is saying, hey, let me tell you a little bit about that guy, but don't, we're not ultimately looking there. We're looking at Isaac. That's the person we want to look at. And then Isaac has a couple of sons, and you get a little bit about Esau, but we're not looking there. We're looking at Jacob. And then Jacob has a bunch of sons, and those eventually carry you to where Joseph is dead in a coffin in Egypt. And then you arrive at the New Testament if you were to read the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament. And how does the book of Matthew start? This is the family record of Jesus Christ. Look here, not there. Blessing is coming, but look here for it not over there. And you get to the end of all things and in Revelation, all of humanity is judged and what do they bring out to do the judging? The family records of the book of the Lamb. Here are the records. Look here, look here, look here, look here. Don't look there. Look here, look here. Not over there. Look here, look here, look here. Blessing is coming and it's gonna undo the curse, but it's coming over here and ultimately it's coming through Jesus Christ. Universe, Adam, Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Terah, Abraham in there, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, a bunch of other people, Jesus. So what is Genesis? It is the theologically interpreted historical memory of one family that gives us the origin, identity, and blessing of God's people because through that people, blessing is coming to the world. That's what the book of Genesis is. It answers the question, how did we get here? And what I mean by here is the existential reality of this place where Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, where Jesus is the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, where Jesus is the thing our soul both craves and needs. How did we get here? Well, let me take you to Genesis and lay the groundwork so that we can understand. Genesis introduces us to who God is and what his purpose is in the world. Now, if all of that felt kind of like the opening lecture in a class on Genesis, I halfway apologize. Halfway because we've got to understand that if we're gonna come to Genesis, ask the right questions and get the right answers out. But I do wanna give us like four truths to anchor our hearts in over the next number of weeks. Truth number one, the condition is more urgent than we acknowledge. The book of Genesis 
does nothing to hide the ugliness of sin. It never downplays it. It never writes it off as if it didn't happen. It doesn't take the sin of some really prominent people and act as though it wasn't egregious evil. Genesis holds up sin in all of its ugly, dark reality. Often, we want to sort of water it down so that we can think sin isn't that bad. Why do we want to think sin isn't that bad? Because if sin's not really that bad, then I'm not that bad. That's the key. Our souls don't need the watered-down version of thinking that sin is kind of like a grass stain that we can simply wash out the next time we do some good deed laundry. And Genesis doesn't present it that way. What we need is the constant reminder that sin is like a virus that's settled into every cell of our being, and there's nothing that these weak and feeble bodies could ever do to rid ourselves of it. Only Jesus can do that. God has blessing, but there is a curse, and from Genesis 3 forward, you get the reminder that only one man can take care of the curse, and his name is Jesus, which leads me to the second truth. The culmination is more glorious than our hearts can conceive. Jesus is more glorious than our hearts can conceive. Here's what happens. Every time you water down the reality of sin, you minimize the work of the Savior. And so every kind of like self-deluding act that we want to do that makes sin seem less of a big deal so that I seem like better of a person just takes Jesus and makes him smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller so that what you end up with is you taking communion and you're looking at body and blood and you're saying, hey, Jesus, uh, thanks for the favor, a little boost, appreciate that. That is not who Jesus is. Jesus is not, hey, thanks for the help kind of making me a little bit better so that I could get into heaven. Jesus is, God has blessing and sin brought curse and I am under the weight of that curse unless something can pull me out from underneath it. And the curse is bad, like all the way terrible, dark, bleak, and black. And Jesus is the only one who could remove it. We need that reminder. There are a lot of prominent individuals in the book of Genesis and the constant drumbeat is gonna be, yeah, Noah, he's a pretty good guy, but he cannot remove the curse. Ah, here's Abraham. He had faith and because of his faith, it was credited to him as righteousness, but he can't remove the curse. Well, what about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph? What about any of their wives? Nope, nope. Nope, nope. And in the rest of the Old Testament, nope, 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 nope. Jesus. And you get all of the darkness and all of the other names and all of the blackness. So that by the time you arrive at Jesus, the full scope of just how glorious he is can scream off the pages. The culmination is more glorious than our hearts can conceive. And unless we have a full understanding of how bad the problem is, we'll never even get close to conceiving how grand the solution is which leads me to truth number three. The conclusion is more satisfying than we dare to dream. Eternity, where everything will be set back to how it was before the curse. You want any chance of understanding Revelation in your Bible, you need to get really clear on Genesis because what Revelation is telling you is that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fully and finally give all of the just punishment that sin deserves and there will be full judgment as it ought to be meted out. Why? Because we're undoing all of that and what remains is only the blessing. And that will be more satisfying than we even dare to dream. 
nothing but blessing. Evil will cease to exist. Good things will no longer be perverted by our fleshly desires into evil things. The shame of sin will no longer weigh on our hearts. God will walk among his people like he did in the garden. The sun will not need to shine because the full radiance of the glory of the sun will give light to the place and that full glory won't strike me dead. You go to a funeral and you're there and a beloved family member or loved one who loved Jesus and by God's grace had been saved through faith in him, right? And you're trying to give yourself all of the reminders that they are in a quote unquote better place. Yo, they're not in a better place. They're in a place that we cannot even hope to conceive of because of how glorious it is. Like we can't even dare to dream how wonderful it's gonna be when all of the stain of sin is fully removed and all that's left is the unending fountain of God's blessing. We can't even dare to dream how wonderful it will be. And then truth number four, the one in control is wondrous beyond comprehension. He holds all things in his hand. The earth, the heavens, the mountains, rivers, oceans, the weather, animals, birds, insects, kings, nations, peoples. In the beginning, God created, and then you get the list of everything that he created. Why? Because he holds all of that in his hands, and he's going to wield it all for his purposes and for his glory. Every bit of it. And so when you get to Exodus, there's wild things happening. Like he's parting a sea and he's bringing all these plagues. Who is this and how did we get here? Well, there's a God who controls all of that and it is no big deal to him to say sea and the water would rush out of the way. That's who he is. He's wondrous beyond comprehension. The sin that wrecks us will not and cannot derail him on every page. In every verse, would we behold the wonder and the majesty of the one who is in control? In every sermon during this series, would we behold the wonder of the one who is in control? Would we be reminded that the end is going to be more satisfying than we dare to dream? Would we be reminded that the culmination of it all in Jesus is more glorious than our hearts could possibly grab hold of? And would we be reminded that the condition that we face is more urgent than we're willing to acknowledge? Those are my prayers for this series. Oh God, would you remind us of the depth of the condition of our sin? God, would you remind us of the height of the glory of Jesus? God, would you remind us, give us a taste, even just the dimmest foretastes of how satisfying the end is going to be. And God, week in and week out, would you give us glimpses into just how wondrous and majestic you are? So how did we get here? Well, there's an incomprehensible God in control of all things, moving us toward a conclusion more satisfying than we dare to dream, thanks to a savior more glorious than we can conceive who came to solve a problem more urgent than we want to acknowledge. That's how we got here. And Genesis is going to help us understand how. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing.